Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Today, we're joined by Kristen Lindquist, a self-described multidisciplinary geek and a startup veteran. Kristen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about your past, your interests, and what brought you to the problems you're working on today? Well, so I've been doing, I've been working in startups since about 2005, um, and I've really hopped around as far as vertical, um, so, and I've also hopped around horizontally. So I've done pretty much every technical job there is to do at a startup that I, I have done that thing. Um, and uh, this is, this is, well, maybe this is some, somewhat pertains to the work that I'm doing today, but um, uh, recently I've been interviewing, and so uh, I've been telling this story about my first startup experience, where I was like fresh from rural southern Colorado, moved up to the city, got my first job, and it was like a big deal with my Linux skills of all things, <laughs> and working at this little startup where we had really big customers, um, and so one of our customers was Merrill Lynch, and they were going to be my project wow. to propel forward. And yeah, so I got them into production and that was okay. But then our software completely like died in this oh, no. horrendous way in their production environment. And we had to be like on, you know, 24 seven conference calls with them trying to resolve this issue. And it was just like, yeah. So my first experience in startup land was something that was like very dramatic. And I realized that even if I did my job well, it wouldn't be enough to have guaranteed the success of my project. So that started me on this bad habit I have of trying to learn everything and trying to get involved in everything. Um, and uh, yeah, had it not been for such a difficult first startup experience, I might have stayed more in my my lane. You've got this like trauma that's informed all the other decisions <laughs> you've made since then. I, I didn't realize that your experience in startups was so broad and I guess deep as well. Like, do you have any lessons you've learned from 15 years of doing absolutely every job in a startup? Yeah, um, I, I'd say I have a lot of working hypotheses more than lessons learned, um, and, and they are abundant. Um, I mean, a lot of them have to relate to, relate to process. Um, I think that process is very important to have a functional engineering team, but also it's really important to be minimalistic with processes, especially like early on in a startup, because you can just like, you can waste all the time in the world with process. I mean, process is like this like vacuum that can just, you know, yeah. everybody sits around and talks about doing things as opposed to actually doing the work. And whiteboard stuff. Yeah, well, which is, of course, very fun. But yeah, so I think um, uh, at some point getting stuff done and the importance of empowering people to get stuff done is essential. And uh, so I learned these lessons over the course of, of my 15 years or so in startups and was felt very vindicated by the Netflix guy. Uh, what's his name? Why am I forgetting it? But he recently wrote a book called The No Rules Rules. And it lays out this approach. Does to, that read to, Hastings? 
yeah, Reed Hastings. Yeah. Uh, and it, it basically lays out this, like, it's really important to have um, individuals with a great deal of autonomy and a great deal of skill in an environment that is very honest and, and that those people can make magic happen. Uh, and that that's the key to avoiding bureaucratic nightmares that basically grind your startup to a halt. So at this point, I feel like I'm a bit of a disciple <laughs> of that way of thinking, and I'm and I'm trying to evangelize it, but it's uh, it's it's not necessarily what everybody's ready to hear. Yeah, when Elon Musk was um, uh, a few years ago, he decided to put a ban on all acronyms, and acronyms uh, seriously suck. Yeah, yeah, and I <laughs> I've been saying that all along because acronyms uh, and and I especially hate startup companies that just use like three letter acronyms for their name. I mean, really? I mean, all the other names are taken, really? There's not a better <laughs> name you can come up with? AIG or <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I worked a long time for IBM, so there there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, just three letters, really? Uh, yeah, how, how do you make that stand out in a crowd? I don't I guess by being one of the most successful computing companies in the history of the world. Well, yeah, no, that's an exception to, to, to the rule. But in general, I mean, you're starting with nothing working for you. Uh, like, like I started the Da Vinci Institute, and I liked the fact that Da Vinci already had a reputation that, uh, so he helped me out, even though he didn't realize it. <laughs> you should have started Very the nice. Elon Musk Institute. Yeah. Cash yeah. in on him. Well, Which I, and by the way, I immediately abbreviated DaVinci Institute to DVI. That's how I, <laughs> I call it DVI in all our correspondence. Yeah. Yeah, Sounds I, like you guys have something to work out here. That's true. Yeah, acronyms, that's true. no acronyms. Yeah, I do have uh, teslainstitute.com. I have that domain name. Uh, Ooh. I think Elon might want to buy that. Yeah, any, any day. That'd be actually a great segue to get him on the podcast. Ah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's the dangling carrot. So, Kristen, one of the things that you and I have in common is a shared interest in thinking carefully and correctly about important issues. Historically, there have been a number of approaches uh, to this project, ranging from rationalism to empiricism and more recently, technical rationality. So where do you fall on this spectrum and why is that the, the approach that you favor? Hmm. Well, I think... Uh you would have to define those terms for me to be able to answer on the spectrum that you just laid out. Um, but I can answer um, more broadly, not just on the spectrum. Okay. Um, that, that's, so, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So it's really hard to know what's true. And I, I think this has been uh, my realization as I've been getting older, I think it's probably the realization of most people as they get older. Um, although maybe not to such a degree, uh, but we go through our lives very confident about things and very confident about our viewpoint. And I don't think we realize that we're standing on very tenuous ground as far as our knowledge. Um, and, th and this can have very damaging consequences. Uh, it's, it's basically, uh, it, it's efficient and we need to make sense of the world around us. We need to reach conclusions about the world around us, um, but it can be fairly difficult in a society when we then get really attached to those viewpoints not really realizing how fragile and how fraught they were to begin with. Um, so yeah, I, I believe in, in really trying to embrace uncertainty as a key thing. Uh, try, it's, I guess, a Bayesian worldview. Um, so it's as much as possible trying to avoid, uh, you know, binary thinking, like it's definitely this way or it's definitely not that way. And instead, 
thinking more about, hey, maybe I'm 60% sure this is true, or at least holding some space for, I, I really actually believe this is true, but I'm not quite certain. And so therefore, if, if, I read, if I encounter contradictory evidence or I encounter somebody with a different opinion, it's much easier to move from 80% to like 60% than it is to move from like 100%, even a little tiny bit off of that. And so I think it's, it's, it's almost like I wish we taught our children more about like how sort of fragile our knowledge really is. And therefore, if we could just try to embrace new evidence as we encounter it. Yeah, one of the tendencies I've seen a lot of people fall into is is if they don't know the answer, they they'll give you a description. The mm. and a description is not an explanation. And so doctors do that a lot. They they're describing what's going on. They're not explaining why. In fact, the whole medical world has really a hard time with the why question. And uh and so and so that I uh I spent a lot of time trying to sort through the the crap, so to speak. Uh, what uh, what what's a legitimate answer and what isn't? And you know, if they're just regurgitating some sort of a description, well, I can do that myself. I, I want I want a real answer, though. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think a description is actually fairly good, although I see your point. Just because, of course, what we hear a lot is opinions. We just hear things are definitely this way. It is obviously it's obvious that things are this way, um, and and is actually there's some interesting research um, about when you a- actually ask people to explain something as opposed to give their opinion about it, uh, that you actually they'll find out that they don't really understand it as well as they think they do. So it's the illusion of explanatory depth. So instead of saying, "Hey, what's your opinion on healthcare policy?" It's like, "Well, can you explain healthcare policy to me?" And it turns out that, you know, that there's a lot to these policies. They're very complicated. And even some research that I believe was done um, uh, actually by uh, somebody who's local here in Boulder, who maybe you can recruit for your podcast sometime, uh, Phil Fernbach, um, some research trying to like getting people to say, hey, do you know what a bicycle, how bicycle functions? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then they have people draw the bicycle. <laughs> And they're like incoherent, these drawings. I mean, it's just like people don't know how the gears connect and, and how it functions at all. And yet they, they think that they do. And yeah. this is how we all are, is it's kind of like our, um, our knowledge is, uh, they're like clouds. From far away, they look very solid. But once you get into them, you're like, oh, there's actually nothing here. And I'm falling right through them. Yeah, this, this isn't even a plausible diagram of a bicycle. Like a bicycle could not be made to work this way. Um, yeah. So I, I have a number of follow-up questions on that. And I, I wanted to start by digging in a little bit on your process for Bayesian reasoning. And this is something I've asked other people as well. I, I'm sympathetic to the idea of trying to quantify uncertainty and, and move from priors and update according to the laws of statistics. But given that humans aren't really built to reason statistically, like how do you handle that? Like how, how do you feel yeah. the difference between 60% and 70% credence? Like how does that cash out in your behavior as opposed to just a verbal signal you admit? You just say, well, I'm now 70% certain. Like, but what's the difference then? Yeah, so uh, as far as my lived experience, I wouldn't say there's any difference between like 60% confident, 70% confident, and maybe 80% confident. I think it's, it's, it's more like not very confident, somewhat confident, moderately confident. Then it gets into the realm of like, I'm pretty sure this is true. And then once in a while, and like, I am, I'm almost certain this is true. 
So it's, it's more those gradations because yeah, I don't, to me in my head, I would be lying if I said that 60% versus 70% credence actually means something to me. Um, so I, I think the key is, is more developing those categories and more importantly, like I think it's useful just to even have more than yes and no and have maybe be a more common answer. Even that is useful. Yeah, there's a company in Boulder called Knowledge Factor. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. They, uh -huh. they, it's uh, an education-based company that will give you uh, testing, and it'll have multiple choice answers. Um, but they not only want you to give the answer that you think is correct, they want you to list the amount of confidence you have in that answer. So that confidence-based learning is is a real interesting um, confidence-based testing is, is actually uh, opens the door for lots of interesting things because through through the work that they were doing, they found that um, uh, somewhere about between 15 and 20% of all the information that we hold in our head is confidently held misinformation. Mm -hmm. we're, we're absolutely certain we're right, but uh, we're dead wrong. You know, there's certain professions where you can't afford to be wrong. If you're a doctor or a surgeon, if you're a pilot, we want those guys to be right all the time. So, uh, so that uh, that's uh, I, f I found it to be such a fascinating uh, area of study that um, I'm surprised more people aren't going down that path. Yeah, it's, it's growing in popularity. I think I may have submitted an application to work there actually years ago. But oh, yeah, that's okay. that's very interesting work. And uh, Kristen, I'm I'm interested in sort of the nuts and bolts of how you go about trying to become confident in a conclusion. So if, if you're facing a problem, walk me through the steps you take to try to move into the, I'm pretty sure this is true column. So do you start by listing out your assumptions about the domain? Do you list out your information? Do you solicit expert opinions? What does that look like when you engage in that? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I would say is, uh, I, I think an important factor in this equation is decision-making under uncertainty. Um, so I'll just put that aside for now, just because I, I think that, that getting to complete confidence on something um, or even high confidence on something is, is very difficult and very time consuming. And so I think most of the game is about maximizing our decisions when we don't know, as opposed to getting to know enough. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, so I've been a major geek about certain topics. Um, uh, sometimes controversial topics like GMO safety, vaccine safety. And I've historically been known to debate people um, but I've uh, on these topics, but I've mostly given that up. Um, it, though it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that I've spent, I don't know, 100, 200, 300 hours reading papers on GMO safety. I mean, over the years, I've spent a lot of time. And, and so I... I usually go in, I would say this is going to be an unsatisfying answer. I generally start my research process in a very confirmation bias driven fashion where I want to prove something to somebody. And so I go and look at the research. But the thing is, like, if I'm once I look at it and it says something that I'm surprised to read, I read more um, as opposed to just ignoring it. Um, and so I, I end up actually going through a, a lot of literature that way. Um, and and yeah, and so I, I think you know, for a time I was being more formal in how I went about this um, because I, I, for some time had a startup and, and made uh, a web app that was all about sort of argumentation and aggregating evidence. 
so that if one wanted to say, hey, you know, are GMOs safe or are G- GMOs good? Let's put it that way. There's, you know, there's about, I don't know, nine to 12 different sort of claims that are typically made in that regard. And each of them have a body of evidence associated with them. And so um, I did build that out at some point. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting to see um, both the arguments, you know, like the arguments for like, you know, improved yields, um, you know, the potential arguments against, you know, increased herbicide usage that tends to go along with GMOs, but then how, da- you know, how damaging is that increased herbicide usage and it goes back and forth. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think what I often find is it's really just like, it's so deep and extensive um, that I know I'm not going to come to a certain answer quickly. So are you okay with a compromised solution then? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, these questions are complicated and their answers are complicated. And so I think it's almost like the question isn't coherent. Um, are GMOs good? It's, and in some respects, I think it is, but in some respects, it's, it, it doesn't really get to the nitty gritty of like all there is to that question. And so I think what I would encourage anybody to do, and I would actually, um, I used to work in the natural and organic industry, and that's how I ended up gaining a passion for the GMO debate, because the, the folks I met in the natural and organic industry, very intelligent, lovely, wonderful human beings. Uh, I happen to think that the majority of them are wrong on GMOs, um, and this is a little bit of a, a point of contention. And, and the only thing I would ever ask any of them, um, if I had the opportunity, would just be to like, just try to keep an open mind and, and try, try, to di- try to read some stuff that isn't specifically catered towards the anti-GMO viewpoint. And, and then make the best decision you possibly can based on incomplete information, because it's always going to be incomplete information. So step outside of the echo chamber for a little while, huh? Yeah, well, and also, <laughs> and, and try to respond to arguments as if they might have some validity as opposed to rejecting them um, immediately because they go counter to your beliefs. So one thing that goes, that is said frequently in the natural organic industry is that, you know, they talk about the money interests in GMOs. It's like, well, we are in the natural organic industry. And um, last I checked, it's like a $37 billion industry. We have money interests here too. And so what does that look like? And we actually, I happen to know from experience that like, Marketing based on concerns about GMOs is very effective. So it's like, it's right there, is there's a money interest for the natural organic industry to promote concern about GMOs. It works. And so if, if Monsanto could have money interests, can we at least admit that maybe we do too? And maybe Whole Foods does and you know, all these other you know, organic companies. And it's not about toggling, oh, that means that we're bad or it's just, it's like, actually let's take good or bad out of the equation and just kind of turn it into complicated world, different companies, different perspectives and just reduce our certainty a little bit, you know, to open our minds. Yeah, so would you be comfortable venturing an opinion and and justifying it with respect to GMOs? Well, yeah, I actually get myself into trouble doing this sometimes because uh, when I was really researching that stuff a lot, it was at this point five plus years ago. Um, and so I, this is another problem in gaining confidence is I find that it gets stale fast. 
Um, and, and partly because uh, I don't always keep good notes as far as like what I researched and where, but I mean, my, my view on, on GMOs is that it's, um, well, it's a technique. Genetic modification is a technique. Hybridization is a technique. Um, there's nothing intrinsically dangerous about the technique. And I think it's an important technique. It's an important tool to have in our toolkit um, for a sustainable food future. And this is a big challenge that we face. Um, of course, with the, you know, the UN's like sustainable goals and, you know, the fact that food insecurity is a big problem in, the, in this world and the fact that our agriculture is, is pretty ecologically damaging. So the status quo is not exactly safe. So GMOs, I'm somewhat unapologetically for GMOs. <laughs> um, but certainly if, if the, the concerns that people have uh, uh, turn out to have to be reality-based, then I would, I would hope that I would be willing to change my mind despite having made many public assertions of my support of GMOs. That's very good. Um, actually, in a lot of these topics that I, I work with, I have, to, I have to look at both sides of the equation. I have to look, um, uh, like, as an example, Starlink is uh, the new satellite system that Elon Musk is putting up around the world. Uh-huh. Is is that going to be the savior of humanity, or is that going to cause all kinds of problems? Is um, and and we we have to we have to adjust our thinking. It's neat. these things aren't just black and white. There's there's going to be problems with all new technology that comes out. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, I just uh, found out an article came out today that says that Russia. Anybody that connects to Starlink in Russia is going to be fined by the Russians. So, um, so obviously they've come down on the side that it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. <laughs> but I, I think it opens the door for being connected to the rest of the world in some of the most remote regions on the planet. And uh, I think if you lived in Siberia, you would welcome the ability to connect to Starlink <laughs> you know, plus, Putin can't send you to Siberia. <laughs> yeah, you, you already live there. Yeah, yeah you already live there. <laughs> uh, well, and relatedly, uh, of course, there was a well. There's been blossoming conspiracy theories recently, of course, um, which really, I mean, I kind of feel like we're conspiracy theory type people to begin with. Um, certainly, there's lots of beliefs that Americans have of various sorts that disagree with the scientific consensus, um, but it does seem to have it's re- reaching a fever pitch in this country. Um, and yes, yeah, so I know that for a while, people are very concerned about like 5G, like what's 5G doing? And, and it's really, it's interesting. I, I think with a lot of these things is there tends to be a seed of, of, not of truth, although maybe I should, maybe I should just phrase it that way. There's a seed of truth to a lot of these things, or at least there's a question. There's a valid question, um, and that is a question that should be asked, and it is a question that should be investigated often. It's just the fact that there's a question doesn't contradict like all this evidence towards its safety or all the reasons not to be concerned about that risk. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, so one of the things I discovered actually when I was debating people on GMOs and vaccines is of course the people who I was debating against are like, uh, by and large, very intelligent people. So I think this idea that people who, who hold unscientific beliefs are, are not smart or anti-science or something, um, I don't think is, is true at all. And what I found at various times is that I was surprised by how sciencey the materials they produced were. 
that, uh, you know, I've seen them with GMOs, I've seen them with vaccines. I mean, there, there are published, there is published re research that says, hey, brings up important questions about vaccine safety, like do alum aluminum adjuvants, um, are they at risk at creating some kind of chronic inflammation that could be tied to various other diseases? I mean, there is a, a sort of anti-vax researcher who does publish real research in real journals. And mostly it's asking questions. And yeah, those questions should, should be asked. Um, and just the weight of evidence is for the safety of vaccines. But, but, so that, but it ends up becoming hard to balance. So the people who are like concerned about vaccines end up fixating on this small body of literature that brings up questions or even demonstrates occasional problems or, you know, God forbid the Wakefield, what a 10 person case study that, that you know, was fraudulent. But they look at this like small body of small bit of evidence over here, not looking at the whole weight of evidence that shows safety. But it led me to think, how would they have access to this whole weight of evidence that shows safety? Are they going to spend the next, uh, you know, the next 300 hours of their waking time digging through all this literature and trying to synthesize it in their heads to make sense of it? The thing is that we're asking people a lot. We're asking of people a lot when, when we ask them to have evidence-based positions. And, and so that's actually one of the things that led me to do my startup rationally, which I've, I've stopped doing. Um, but I was thinking like, hey, like what if there was a place where we can compile all the evidence um, that pertains to GMO safety, all the evidence that pertains to vaccine safety? What if we can compile it, organize it, weight it, score it, aggregate it, in one place. Um, and so, and as new research comes out, we can add it to the pile. And so this becomes something that kind of shows the weight of evidence to people. So they don't simply have to rely on expert opinion or expert statements. There's a lot of really smart experts out there. There's a lot of people who really know their stuff, but I think it's, it's asking people a lot, especially these days with a lot of the, the low trust that we have to say, hey, because you know, Dr. Joe Bob says vaccines are safe, therefore don't ask any more questions. Because you know what? They also have a doctor that says vaccines are not safe. So whose expert do you trust? Yeah, so this is a great segue into talking about rationally. I, I know that you've moved on from that effort, but there's still a lot there worth discussing. And I was hoping that we could just start with you telling us what you were trying to accomplish there uh, and, and the techniques that you were using to pursue that. Yeah, so I, I realized I actually uh, started uh, rationally the day after we elected Trump. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, and so, yeah, I was, I was thinking that, something should exist like Quora, online questions and answers, but where the answers are aggregated evidence instead of prose and opinion. And I'm not knocking Quora answers. A lot of them are fantastic yeah. and written by people who love have a lot of expertise, but they're point in time, they're point in perspective. And what I really wanted was like a compilation of, of all the relevant evidence in one place. And so that it could be investigated, it, somebody could drill in as deeply as they wanted to, um, so that it could be living. So as new, as new findings came out, we can add them to the pile and, and try to make it as accessible to the general public as possible. And so that it was not stuff, it was not knowledge that had to filter through an expert. It felt like you were actually, it was you and the research making sense of it. Um, yeah, so I was going to build it. I did build it actually um, to be crowdsourced. If I 
had it to do over again, I would probably try to do more automation um, since it's really hard to make, you know, to have a crowdsource solution to try to make sense of the 2.5 million new papers being written every year. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I built, it, it did serve its function. It was pretty cool. Um, it's very hard to get users for a crowdsourced site. <laughs> uh, but I did have CU Boulder use it for about a year. Um, they have this uh, in their evolutionary biology department. There's this guy, professor, uh, professor Andrew Martin, who's a wonderful man. And he's always like bringing in people to do interesting things with his class. And he's, he really gets um, excited about giving other people opportunities. He's like, he's an amazing instructor. And so uh, he brought in me and, and my software to help teach his undergraduate classes how to evaluate evidence. So that was, that was really cool and very informative. Um, and yeah, so it was a very interesting process. I still think we desperately need something like this. Uh, I don't know exactly how we're gonna go about manifesting it in the world, especially considering that I never figured out a good business model for it. So, so I've been um, asking the question of how do we apply a truth meter to everything that mm. we, we have in society? Um, because apparently that's what seems to be going on right now is we're trying to um, fact check everything. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that if we went through all the history books um, and held a truth meter to them that we'd fail miserably. In fact, everything that's taught in grade school and high school pretty much a lot of those would fail miserably as well. Um, so our, um, I mean, at, at a certain point, I mean, you can't drill down any farther. I mean, is, is this reasonable to be going down this path? I mean, when we know so little and when creating fakiness is so easy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, uh, I think it's easier to create fake news than it is to create real news. Um, right. <laughs> and yeah, and so, and, and so uh, when one is rigorous, when an entity or a person is rigorous, it takes a lot more time to make well-formed claims than it does for somebody who's just making stuff up. So it is, it is uh, a huge challenge and I don't entirely know what the solution is. Uh, I do think that we could all be wiser as far as avoiding recognizing fallacy, recognizing our own biases, and therefore just having a better bullshit detector. Because I think it's hard to know what's true, but sometimes it's, it's fairly easy to detect what is obviously bullshit. Yeah, so I, I actually wanted to ask you about this earlier when we were talking about the fact that half the game is acting under uncertainty and not necessarily achieving a high credence in a given belief. What is the default behavior supposed to be if you're just really, really uncertain about things, because with respect to the healthcare debate, you've got experts on both sides. There's this acrimonious 110 year debate going on about the, the proper way to approach this. What are the rest of us supposed to do if we simply don't have the time to get into it? That's a great question. So one is I think that we could try to create or leave an environment that is more conducive to finding the truth than we currently do. And, and there's so much like uh, our, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of our uh, congressional politicians, but I have to say they have a hard job because we the people are not that reasonable. And if we were more reasonable, their jobs would be easier and maybe they could actually like focus on doing their jobs as opposed to appeasing the crazy people of this country. So, um, I, I think that uh, 
you know, by not being so prone to outrage, not having such strong positions unless we've put in the time to understand something, I think those things can help. At the end of the day, when you're voting on something, it's your choice how you're going to vote. And if they've asked you to vote on a thing, then it's damn well, it's your choice. Like this year I voted to reintroduce gray wolves into our environment. I'm an animal lover. It sounds like a great idea. Um, I'm not entirely sure that was the right decision because it you know, puts a lot of burden on ranchers. And uh, anyways, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of nuance to these things, but I think at the end of the day, we have some choices to make and it's our right to make them. But if we could avoid being so outraged and, cre and contributing to society that is fundamentally unreasonable, and if we could avoid really propagating misinformation you know, I think that there's various research that shows that like misinformation propagates at far faster a rate than the truth. Right. And that's because misinformation has been formed to be viral, to be mimetic. And it, it preys on our outrages. It preys on our tribal allegiances. It preys on all this stuff. And so we're, we're passing it on. We're passing this disease of misinformation on because we're so angry and because we're having our strings pulled. So I think that the, the thing that we could do is just like calm down a little bit and be less prone to being manipulated because then at least we aren't jamming the airwaves full of bullshit. And maybe a trickle of truth has a little bit you know, more of a chance. So do you think that outrage has gotten worse? And if so, what are the mechanisms driving that? I mean, you know, we, there's always been witch hunts. There's, there's always been persecution of, of one sort or another, but it seems to me that it's gotten worse. I haven't done any careful research to pin that down, but I am curious as to how you feel about it and what you think might be the cause of that. Yeah, well, I, I certainly think as far as uh, partisan hate, I think that there's some good evidence that it, it really is particularly bad right now. Uh, and although th there is always questions about like, we're so online, we have so much data now as opposed to 50 years ago. And so it's, it's, it's hard to compare, but I certainly share your opinion. Um, and of course, the more I look at Facebook and Twitter, the more it seems like front of mind. And recently I've realized, oh, I can just stop looking at social media and my life gets a lot more peaceful. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, I, I think it's kind of like, I don't know, an attractor state or, or something like that. Uh, I think that there's these like ping pong phenomena where we like drive ourselves to ever increasing insanity. So like one thing I think started happening was with uh, the, the Tea Party in the Obama era and the Republican politicians. I feel like they had a ping pong effect where like the Republicans were like rattling the cage of, of their people, um, trying to get them angry to go out and vote. And then they got really angry. Their base got really angry and then was making demands of their politicians, which had made their politicians more unreasonable. And I think, of course, that's continued to this day. I think that there's this sort of like the politicians make the people angry so that they will turn out to vote. But then the people get really, really angry and then they start getting angry at their politicians and demand that they get, you know, that their politicians appease them, even if their ideas aren't actually that valid and aren't that good. So I think that's at least one phenomenon. Of course, I, you know, so it's between the people and our, you know, our party's politicians. But I think, of course, it's between the two parties and this like cultural divide and whatnot. And that we are, uh, you know, if, if you aren't in the blue tribe and you aren't in the red tribe, 
um, where are you? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it can kind of leave you out there in no man's land. Um, and of course, there's a growing, growing sort of like intellectual dark web and gray tribe, which is yet another thing that has its own, you know, gravitational mass to it. But I think when you're left out there as a social animal without allegiance to a tribe, you can kind of get sucked into the orbit of some other tribe. So I, I think it's, it's hard to be independent and it can be hard to opt out if you're engaging in this way, if you're, if you're even using social media, I feel like it's hard to opt out of tribal allegiance. How much of the blame do you think rests on the social media companies themselves? And <laughs> do you have any suggestions for ways to encourage more civil and informed debate on these platforms? Yeah, so I, I'm not sure I know very many people who share my opinion, but I don't think Mark Zuckerberg and, uh, and what's his name? Jack Dorsey. The Twitter guy. Yeah, Zach. Um, Jack, sorry. Uh, I don't think <laughs> that they're particularly responsible. I mean, I, I think that they've created, um, they've monetized outrage, but I don't think that was their intention. I think they've, they, they monetize clicks, and it just so happens that outrage is a good way to get us to click. Um, but I ultimately, I think that they are platforms that, that connect, you know, the citizens of the world and that's cool. And we need to wise up to like how to use this infrastructure and to not be so crazy. And so I get a little frustrated when I feel like we are blaming them for us being insane. Cause it's like, well, how about we take more personal responsibility to stop being so crazy? Well, duh. but ultimately, duh, we're why wouldn't so it's you? Hard. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? I said, well, duh, why wouldn't you blame yeah. them? <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but you're bringing up a really good point because um, because they're, they're kind of the lightning rod that um, attracts all the attention. Um, and um, yeah, so, so and, and also they're, they're wealthy people, so we, we, we blame the rich for everything, so. Uh, that that seems to be the logical direction to go. Yeah. Well, and and what what can we say? It's like, oh, it's it's three hundred million people's fault, not it's you know two people's fault. It, it it the diffuse responsibility is hard, but I do wonder if our next sort of cultural shift is going to be towards one of greater personal responsibility. And I, and I think it's important and I think it's essential. I mean, I think we need to have more agency in how we respond. And, you know, and I think hopefully we'll, we'll burn ourselves out of this outrage because it's like, it's like toxin. I mean, it's, it, it makes me miserable when I get outraged and a lot of this stuff can get me outraged. It's making us, I feel like it makes us sick. And so at some point, hopefully we just get tired of willingly engaging in that. And so then we move on to a new cultural moment which hopefully instills some new values in us. Yeah, we. I, I, a, few, a few years ago, we had a, a mastermind group and we debated this topic of does being smarter, being smarter make you happier? <laughs> and, uh, and it, was, it was really interesting going back and forth on that. And, and we kind of concluded that ignorance is bliss, but uh, <laughs> that's not where we want to be. So <laughs> it was, so as we learn more, as we're more aware, and that's the um, the internet is creating this global awareness that we we're knowing much more about everything going on around the world than we've ever have in the past. Are we actually emotionally equipped to handle that knowledge? Well, yeah. I, I think you have to be 
careful with that because it's true that there's this incessant deluge of information, but it's not actually very good information. And so it's kind of like saying that we have access to way more calories, which is true, but if it's all potato chips, then I mean, you're not going to feel good on a steady diet of that kind of low nutrient dis- density food. And so when it comes to your information consumption, I think that to Kristen's point, we're making ourselves sick. Being outraged all the time by consuming these things is really low grade, uh, low value diet of information. And so it's not clear to me that we actually know that much more or that we're getting so much benefit from a 24 hour news cycle that's clearly incentivized to just serve up whatever they possibly can. I mean, it's hard to fill 24 hours a day with meaningful content. And so they just sort of drag up whatever. And I think that increased agency is a crucial component to a solution to that problem because you have to be willing to just say, well, the fact that I watched, you know, a one hour segment on the crisis in Syria from CNN or Fox, pick your favorite news station, wherever you get this does not mean you actually understand that very well. And if you're not factoring that in or weighing the evidence or working to act intelligently under uncertainty, then you can't expect the consequences to be good. Okay, Kristen, you have to sort out this argument here. (laughs) (laughs) She can be the arbiter. Well, ultimately, I would say that I have optimism for the future, for the future. But I I think it's more that are we really going to turn our backs on having the world be interconnected? I mean, that seems like an impossible idea. Like it just seems like the future is is connected humanity. How would we know that we have the ability to be connected, but then turn our backs on it because we've, we messed it up? Yes. So I, I think it is something that we have to learn. Um, and apparently, at least some historians believe that there was a great deal of like violence and social upset following the creation of the printing press. And so maybe this is a phase that we have to go through. But then we have this like fairly remarkable social operating system that we're always operating under, which is why we have everything that we have, because our brains haven't changed that much, you know, for a million years. And so it's really the social operating system that has created magnificent things, also a lot of bad things, but maybe we'll be able to, as a society, get smarter. There are several directions I'm tempted to go down following that comment. Uh, I guess I'll stick with the more hopeful one. What what is it that makes you optimistic? I mean, when I look around, I don't find many reasons to to feel good about the direction that we're going. So you said you're optimistic. Why? Well, one reason is I think people are so good. And (laughs) I don't think that's what people are currently perceiving one another to be. But so many of our passionate, outraged arguments are about what's right, what's, what's right for us, what's right for the country. And so I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I have a bluish tinge to my politics, um, and I have certain ideas about what I think is good and right. But what I recognize on the other side, that, you know, the reddish side, is they're very passionate about what they think is good and right, too. And so I think we have you know, 300 million people just in terms of this country, but of course there's more in the world who are very extremely passionate about goodness. Can't we do something with that? I think we're misinformed, but good. Now other people disagree. They might think that other people are bad or that we don't share values, 
but I find that to be highly questionable. I mean, because when I when I talk to uh, you know people on the other side of the fence, I see people who are like, "Hey, you know, I, yeah, I'm concerned about personal liberty. I'm concerned about socialism. I'm concerned about these things because I think these other things are really crucial to having a good society in which people flourish." And you know, somebody on the blue side might say, "Oh, well, I'm you know concerned about poverty, and I'm concerned about you know this and that." And I think those things are crucial to have a, have humans flourish. So I think we have lots of people who are concerned about the flourishing of humans. Yeah. So isn't and, it just a matter of somehow getting the right information into people's hands so that we're able to work together on this problem? So, so the motivation's there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, one of the, the challenges we're up against is that technology tends to be very isolating. Um, I, I often think about this idea of getting into a driverless car and, and just for the next 20 hours driving to New York or driving to Seattle or something, just watching, playing video games, watching movies, uh, staying productive in there, but totally isolated from the rest of the world as the car just does all the driving. And, and I go there now, this used to be a, a kind of a communal experience where you get a group of people into a car and go somewhere. Um, and that was a, a, a fun a uh, fun event to do something like that is very engaging. Um, but now we have the ability to, uh, well, I mean, COVID has actually forced us to be apart from everybody. And uh, now we're working from our homes and our basements and our uh, locked away in little closets um, just to stay isolated from the world. I, I think that that uh is part of what's working on our heads at this point that we're um we're being forced to stay apart from each other and i think humanity is hardwired i mean we're social creatures by nature so we're hardwired to want to be around other people and yet we can't be um i i, I i'm not sure i have a question for you and that. <laughs> <laughs> that's more of a commentary <laughs> Well, I think it's very interesting as far as the remote work thing. So I recently started a job for a company in California, and I'm very happy that I had this opportunity because they're a great company. Um, and there's only so many companies out here in Colorado. But yeah, this is the first time they're remote and, and really they're doubling down on remote only because of COVID. And so there's these great opportunities that arise as a result of remote work. But at the same time, like, man, I mean, I think if we don't find some other way to get meaningful human connection, we, we're gonna have some other crisis related. You know, We're gonna look at the point of time where we all started really investing in remote work and be like, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> because I do really think that we need this more face-to-face -face communication and this, you know, people are so, I find compelling in real life in a way that they aren't quite so compelling over Zoom. I mean, Zoom's great. It's a good improvement over what came before. But yeah, like human to human, you know, interaction is just, you know, viscerally compelling. And, and, uh, and so I think we're going to need to find other ways to achieve that. So maybe we'll find new creative ways to create human connection. Who knows? So building on some of the comments you made about terminal values and the basic goodness of people, I, I guess I'm, a little less sanguine that we all agree <laughs> on on ultimately what we want. And I find myself warming up more to the idea of of 
breaking up larger countries into smaller social units that operate on different social operating systems. Uh, not, not in a violent secessionist way, but just I, I'm not sure, I, and I'm less optimistic than you are, uh, that ultimately it's a matter of just getting the right information into people's hands. And I hope that I'm wrong about that. I, I would like to believe that, you know, if, if you just make the argument compelling enough that we could agree on, on ultimately what we want. But I don't know that that's the case. And I guess I, I just am curious as to what you think about that proposal, about the idea that maybe we should allow and encourage a little bit more self-segregation, not in a hard sense, not legally mandating that people can't can't get together, but just that it's it becomes easier to maybe make your own micro country within a broader country or establish a set of laws that govern you. Yeah, are you familiar with David French? The Economist? Formerly of the National Review and then started the dispatch with some of his other National Review people. Yes, yes, I am. He recently wrote a book, and I haven't read it, don't, don't know what it's called, but I bet it's great. I love David French. Um, <laughs> basically making that very same argument. And of course, it's a very federalist argument. And, and, you know, that goes back to the founding of this country. Was it, you know, used to be way more federalist than it currently is. And I, I, think, I, I think that I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where I stand on these things. But I do think that if people can self-organize and have more local control, that has lots of benefits. Um, one is trying to hash everything out at the national level is very time consuming and slow. And people, of course, don't feel like they have very much influence and agency. And versus like your ability to go talk to your, you know, your more local government. So we do have more influence locally just because there's fewer people in our locality. And so... I think if nothing else, it may not be so much about people self-segregating based on values, but more like people having the ability to influence their local governments more and thus not feeling so alienated by it. Um, I, think that's, uh, I think that's partly true in the workplace too. I mean, it goes back to individuals having the autonomy um, and groups having the autonomy to try things and see how they turn out and to iterate based on that. Uh, I, I think that people can get frustrated when everything basically like comes down from on high and then they have to just accept it, which is kind of what it feels like when you have a massive federal government that makes decisions for the entire country. And so I, I think people should have a reasonable stake in how they live, in, in the government structure of their lives, and how can you possibly do that when you're trying to cover everybody 300 million people with a single very domineering umbrella. Yeah, that played out in um, <clears throat> in a big way in the early 1970s. Uh, we were going through an energy crisis, and all of a sudden they imposed a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, <laughs> um, which you know was okay for people in New York City and Washington, D.C., who can never actually get up to that speed anyway. But um, out, out in the middle of Kansas, that felt like the, the golf cart was passing you and uh, people could walk faster than you were going. And, uh, and so that, uh, that uh, created such a disconnect between rural areas and the metropolitan areas. And that, that type of, um, I think going to what Trent was saying is that the, having regional-based decisions like this is 
would seem like a much better approach to things rather than having one overarching, this is the way it's got to be type of decision. Yeah, I, I think that's wise. And of course, there's a lot of robustness and resilience to decentralization. That's, that's pretty beneficial. Um, and so if, if there is more centers of power and it's not all getting consolidated up into the federal government, then that's at least one way to mitigate the future harm of, of having elected the wrong president. Well, yeah, exactly. So I sometimes try to make the case for more localism and more federalism by just saying, okay, you hate the current president. Well, why don't we just make it so that that office doesn't have that much power? And it just, it just really doesn't matter who is in office or it's, it's not nearly as consequential. I mean, because right now, the, the wrong sort of president could catastrophically cripple the infrastructure of the country, could damage relationships with other countries, could potentially lead to wars of various kinds. And that could obviously be very damaging in the, in the current state of things. So I, I feel like if we just invest that office with less authority as the founders intended, then many of those other problems will, if not disappear entirely, will at least be less consequential. Well, we need a king. Okay. Yeah, we, <laughs> we need a king because they're just, um, yeah, kind of. Well, you, uh, you, you say that as a joke, but I, I've seen people seriously advance that as a thesis, that, <laughs> that having a kind of figurehead that doesn't really take a side, but is just sort of a different distal center of power is actually really good for the functioning of a country. And, I, and we're by fortuitous coincidence, we're watching the crown on Netflix, which is, which is really good, yeah. you know, and, and the queen is it's queen Elizabeth II, And she's constantly wrestling with it. She wants to take a position. And there's a, a, a sequence of episodes where a socialist prime minister has been elected and she's not a socialist and she doesn't particularly care for him, but she talks to him on a human level and they kind of get things going and they, and they get things working. And, and there's always this tension of her not wanting to take a side. But I've been thinking about that a little bit recently, reflecting on the show and, and how it might be good to have somebody who's just kind of an authority figure, but not in a particular direction. She's just there to kind of dress you down if you're behaving poorly uh, and, and kind of provide long-term stability. Yeah, well, I, I think that's wise, especially these days. And I think that there are some people who are coming together to be like, look, we may have pretty extreme policy differences, but right now we have... We have process problems in this country, um, <laughs> which to put it very mildly, and, and we need to focus on that. We need to focus on our constitutional democracy and getting that working and put aside, you know, like David French, you know, who I mentioned, I adore. He is a social conservative through and through, and, and he is um, very rigorously and passionately um, uh, pro-life and anti-abortion in, in a way that doesn't reflect my viewpoint. But uh, you know, I would, he's a, he's, he's a man who, well, one is, I think is always civil and wise about putting forward his perspective in a way that I can actually hear it and understand it, which is novel for me. Um, but then two is just like, look, you know, if we don't start working on the, you know, the fabric of this country that ties us together, there's not going to be a country. We're not going to care about these other policy issues that get us all so angry. You know, we need to, we need to kind of like change the conversation to get a little bit more foundational before we can go back to hashing out these difficult issues. So, so let me, let me test this idea on you. I, I think this is a solution to everything, but whenever we come up with a new system or a new policy or a new program that the government's going to implement, I think we should game test it first. And we could game test it and find out where the breaking points are, what works and what doesn't work. And then we would know a whole lot more about it by the time it actually got implemented. Um, 
and so that's that's uh, my my idea that maybe we'll never work or ever get off the ground. But uh, I like it. <laughs> how, do, how do you what, what's the mechanism for game testing it just to flesh that oh out yeah there, there's uh, uh, there's different ways of taking like let's say the uh, the healthcare program that got implemented uh, many years ago if we if we were actually to, to game test that to try it out in a massive online user base of people that were were working with like a Sims game of sorts, to, to test out how well it worked and how how well it functioned, what pe- what things people understood, what they didn't understand, and where the breaking points were. Um, it all works perfectly in my head. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you guys aren't getting this. We're, we're gonna run it. We're gonna run a Sims. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna play the Sims with this. Yeah. Social system in place and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think that just the, the challenge with that is that all models are wrong, um, yeah. <laughs> but some are useful. Right. So it could be a useful exercise. I think that even getting people to imagine themselves in, like if you're having people play this game, play the simulated game, then people aren't going to make the same decisions that they would make in real life. This is something I have for my uh, product and UX experience and startups is like, you can show some, somebody a mock-up and they're gonna say one set of things and then you have them use it and they're gonna say an entirely different set of things. So I think it's, it's, it's about the fidelity of um, the model. But I think, it's, I think it's very wise and should be part of what we do. And second of all, I think as far as game testing and where I thought you first were going, is if we want to try out a new healthcare policy or we want to try out something like UBI, universal basic income, that I think is a fabulous idea. I think we should try it small scale before, you know, increasing our, you know, federal budget by however much money. I think that if we could figure out how to try it in Colorado, I think Colorado would be a great test bed for a lot of policies. And it's, it's smaller scale, smaller stakes. And we can also make things work like marijuana legalization for one, but then we can like basically share the good word about how well this policy worked and then other states can choose to adopt it. And it's not so much like ramming this theoretical idea down people's throats and instead more like see what we were able to do in this state. Maybe you want to try it too. Yeah. And, and if they do, they can move here or other states can adopt it to their local conditions. And if, if they don't, then it doesn't have to be something that everyone lives under if they don't want to. Yeah. Um, so in the closing minutes here, I, I wanted to ask directly something that we've kind of circled around, and, and that's how you approach the question of ethics. So there's an ethical dimension, obviously, to the sorts of decision-making processes you use to arrive at true beliefs. There's ethical dimensions to how you organize a society, how you interface with other people. So do you tend to come down more as a consequentialist, or do you have some other way of thinking about ethical questions? Yeah, well, I definitely lean consequentialist. The problem with that is the infeasibility of consequentialist calculations, which are hilariously infeasible um, because we just don't know what our decisions are going to do one step down the line, much much less 10 steps down the line. But yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to, to look at, you know, that versus just deontology rules for the sake of rules. Not a fan of that. But I think increasingly, over the years, I'm a fan of nonviolence and non-hate and compassion. And, and for one is we should stop being so prone to condemn other people 
for what are clearly factual errors in their thinking. And, and I feel this way about, um, uh, you know, the people who were at the Capitol the other day. I mean, I think, I mean, I really disagree with those people on a lot of issues. Uh, can't, can't overstate that. But I think a lot of them are working on the wrong factual information. Not that they're, it's not a moral difference, I think, so much between them and I. I think it's a factual difference. And so I think that changes how you interact with people. Like, I, I know there's a lot of calls to take a heavy hand, um, a heavy policing hand um, with these people. And I mean, maybe that's necessary. I don't know. I mean, certainly if there's going to be further violence, we have to, we have to deter that somehow. But at the same time, I mean, what about looking at these people more like, well, you know, you made mistakes on the basis of having bad factual information, which by the way, came to you from the president of the United States. And somehow we've, you know, we failed to prevent this guy from getting into the office who told you all these lies. And so this is actually kind of our joint responsibility of the people in this country. So anyways, I just think being kind, being forgiving, trying to be self-aware. I think, uh, you know, if, if I were to have to make a decision about whether or not to spill somebody else's blood, that's the decision I should spend hundreds of hours researching. It's not a decision to be made lightly. It's not a self-evident decision. It is something that would be the most awful decision to have to make. And so I think it's just to be like very cautious um, about making decisions that do harm, that, that will cause harm to other people. So I think that's kind of where I stand. I mean, it's just, you know, we have all these great nonviolent people, you know, in our, in our history, you know, with like MLK and we have people like the Dalai Lama and, the, and Buddhists who just really promote this sort of idea about compassion and avoiding doing harm to others um, unless there's really no other option. Fantastic. I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for being here with us and sharing your perspective. Yeah, my pleasure. It's fun. All right. Thanks, Kristen. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.